Our first guest tonight is Kevin Smith. Kevin, as I'm sure most of you know, is a resident of Mullaney. He grew up, however, on the western edge of the Snowy Mountains in a small sawmilling village. He's worked primarily in drama and theater as actor, writer, and teacher. He's written for the theater, but poetry is his main love, or perhaps his obsession, whichever way you want to put it. <laughs> um, his poetry has been published in Australia and overseas, with uh, several of his poems being runners-up, finalists, shortlisted, gaining commendations and honorable mentions in major competitions around the world. Mark Trednick says that Kevin is a rare voice in Australian poetry. His poems remind us what poetry is for. Tonight, we're here to talk about his and to celebrate his first anthology, Awake to the Rest of My Days. Please welcome Kevin to Outspoken. <laughs> Now, Kevin, I think it was Thelonious Monk who was famous for saying that um, uh, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Uh, so I don't really know what talking about poetry is. You know, possibly it's like, you know, kind of swimming about art or something like that. But I thought rather than start on some kind of intellectual analysis of, of your poems, it'd be better just to hear one. Great. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> This is a poem called At the Window. Suppose I'm sitting at the window in this kitchen, waiting for the rain to come and thinking of you. Thunder wakes the clouds and birdsong gladdens the bush and far beyond a chainsaw's muted growl. When I see the date, the 13th of October, I try to remember, is this your birthday? Does it really matter, I wonder? You're a thousand miles away. Suppose you're wondering about me and why I haven't called. My face darkens in the window as the storm beguiles the light from the room. Suppose things had been different, that I'd left her instead of you. Suppose we had that child that life, the one that we conceived so full of poems about those things we'd fathomed in each other. Would you be happy now with how it turned out? Would I? Sometimes I let myself imagine the way we'd have kissed, waking each day, and how you'd have let me find my way between your thighs the rain at the window, thinking of her. This book's divided into several different parts. The first one in particular focuses on your childhood and your father. He, he was a worker at the mill? Is that yeah. Right? He was a, he was an unskilled labourer, I suppose. Unskilled labourer. Mm. And, and uh, your, you, you had, he was the father and your mother of seven children, is that mm. right? Yeah. yeah. Three girls and four boys. <laughs> and where, where was this? Um, the sawmill was called Hardy's Mill and it was seven miles out of Tumbarumba on the southwestern slopes of New South Wales. Is so that... Wagga's probably the closest, biggest town. To... But is it quite high? I mean, are we talking altitude here? Uh, it snowed in the winter, 
so we'd get snowed in sometimes. And um, the, uh, the, the only timber they were milling um, there was alpine ash, and I think it grows between 1,000 and 1,100 metres. Okay, so so it, the mill was a little bit lower than that, but that's where they were harvesting the timber from. Yeah. And it was a pretty hard scrabble. Yeah. Sorry, I mean, that's an American word, but it's a, it was a hard scrabble existence. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I don't know that we understood that or recognised that so much as when we were younger, but I think later on in life we did. And, um, but yeah, there, it was, you know, people worked really hard and, you know, the men, the men would leave the mill on the Friday afternoon at three o'clock and drive into town and, you know, they'd be straight into the pub and... The pub would shut at 10 o'clock and then the, the publican would draw the blinds and lock the doors and so everyone could stay for another hour. And um, after that, my dad would drive us home. So, you know, those were the days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, drive your mother and, and the seven children all in, all in the station wagon with yep. a, a number of beers under the belt? Quite a number, yeah. I think, it, I mean, he only made it because mum kept him awake and kept him on the road. And so, yeah, it's a miracle, really, when you think yeah. of it. And, and I'm curious that, that because it's a very profound part of this poetry book, these, mm. these, these events that you've, you've got there, they're kind of really central to... Uh, they must be very central to some aspect of you as a writer. I think that's right. I think it's right. I think... Um, uh, you know, one of the things that well, the one of the things I realised when I when I tried to try to find my way through how does one write poetry because there's so many different types of poetry and people have very different opinions about it. But I think the thing that that uh, started to coalesce in me around that was that I wanted to reach people. You know, I wanted I wanted I wanted a poem to leave the stage in this case, and for it to reach people and for people to be affected by that and. Um, yeah, and there's a, there's a, I mean, I write lyric poetry and lyric poetry is about, you know, the felt, our felt sense of the world, our felt sense of what it's like to be human and what the, what the joys and difficulties are of that. And, um, I mean, that's why some of, you know, some of the, um, Chinese lyric poets from centuries gone past are still feel and sound contemporary because, you know, what they were writing about in relation to you know, what it was like to be human is the same as what it is for us today. I mean, the contexts are different, but, yeah. And so, this collection of poems that you've got here, how many years of writing does that represent? Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like those, um, you know, uh, uh, musicians are a band that make their first record, and a lot of them say, you know, the first the first song was written 20 years ago, so they've got this, you know, archive of songs for their first album, so they've got plenty to choose from. And then after that, you know, it's like, look out, what's next? And, and I think it's a bit similar. I had a lot of poetry, but... Um, um, and, and a lot of that's in this book and some of the newer stuff as well. Um, after the the mentorship, or actually during the mentorship I had with Mark Tredenick, who's an Australian poet, um, I became very productive. Yeah. And so I've got... There is another book on the way and, you know, probably another couple after that if, if someone decides they want to publish it. Yeah. So uh, the... 
I'm just curious, the, the poems that you wrote some time ago, are they, were they finished poems 20 years ago or have you had to rework them? Do, is it a constant system of yeah. writing? Yeah, I, I do. I rework all the time. Um, uh, you know, I've read a lot at, uh, at um, Club Acoustic and, I mean, one of the things I recognised in myself is that every time the spotlight on you brightens a little bit, I, I tend to go back and have another look. So if I was, if I was, I've had that experience quite a bit with, um, with you know, reading at places like like um, Club Acoustic, where I'm at home in the afternoon and I'm, I'm st suddenly I'm awake to more of what's going on in the poem and I'm improving that and and sometimes I have the experience when I'm on the stage reading it that I'm actually I've re I'm, I'm editing it as well because I'm there's 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 something that goes on between you know, the, the reader and the listeners, you know, and, and, and when, you've got, when you've got a bunch of people sitting there listening to what you're reading, you start to critique that at a, at a, at a higher level, you know, and, and that is just so important for the development of, of yeah. the work, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I knew that you were interested in writing for as long as I've known you, but I didn't realise that, that you actually were writing poetry. I thought you were writing plays. I thought that was your kind of, your métier. Yeah, I, I mean, poetry was the first thing that grabbed me when I was, I think it was in year 10 in high school in Tumut, studying, um, studying, uh, oh God, what, one of Shakespeare's plays. It's just escaped. Othello. I was reading Othello. We were studying Othello. Yonder marble skyline. And that was, you know, that was like you see in the movies when people make ice figures and you hit it with a hammer and it just crumbles. That's what that was like. Yonder marble skyline. And later Macbeth, you know, um, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day and so on, and they, uh, that was really the beginning, the awakening of the, that feeling of, oh my God, what, the, what is this language doing to me? How can, how can those words like that affect me so, um, so deeply? And I think I've, I mean, I'm only just realising this right now, but I've just said that, and I said this other thing about wanting to reach people, so mm. I guess... Well, I mean, I think all writing that I know of comes out of emulation. You get that experience of somebody moving you so much with words. Mm. And there's a kind of a, 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 an, an extraordinary desire to be part of that conversation or to be able to do the same thing. Mm. I don't know quite where it comes from, but it, mm. it's, it's a very serious driving force. Yeah. And I, I sort of went round the block a few times because I did, I, I, I did drama and taught drama in high school and at university. And and I wrote plays and I had a play produced and I also have written a number of short stories, one of which was published in the Southerly magazine. I've got a, an SFD novel, The Shitty First Draft, <laughs> in, the, in the drawer somewhere at home. It's about that thick. So I think they're all they're all, they were all ways of me trying to figure out where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do with writing. And it's so interesting, you know, you think about, you know, success. Oh, how, did I, how do I achieve this success? And you can say, oh, yeah, I did this and I did that and I did that and I did that and then I was there. But actually, I think it's more like you did that and then you went there and you went down there and you went over there and you came back again and you did that, you know. And those, all those blind alleys that... that that my experience was, you know, now that all the blind alleys that I went up doing that were actually really important parts of the 
of the process of of finding my way into writing somehow. Yeah. Mm. I mean, one of the other things that I noticed in the book is that there are footnotes throughout the book. I mean, there's, I mean, there's probably only about 10 or 12 of them, I don't know, but it was kind of quite unusual because I, I, I wasn't used to finding a footnote in a poem that didn't tell me the meaning of a word or something. So I started flicking back to the back of the book to see what these referred to. And I noticed that you were being really assiduous in honoring where words or phrases had come from in mm. other people's poems. And I, it got me thinking a little bit about, because one of, early in my acquaintance with you, we were at a dinner at a friend's house and the, and the subject came up of recitation. And it turned out that you were able to recite nearly all of Shakespeare's sonnets. And uh, a third. Third. Well, quite, quite, quite a few There's of them. There's 154, in case wondering. In an extraordinarily <laughs> impressive manner, right? And I, I just wondered whether that um, assiduity, that, that, that attention to detail that you've got there in the book comes out of the fact that you have so, much, so many other people's poems actually in your head that mm. you wanted to make sure that when you actually were borrowing from one of them, you wanted to point it out or, or, yeah. or, or honour it or something. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the case. One of the things that happened, I mean, I learnt 18 sonnets because I was teaching at TAFE and kids were doing sonnets and I figured I had to learn them. So that's where that began. Uh, I, there was something about those sonnets. I, I think they're an extraordinary form when they're, when they're done well. They have a lot of punch and I, I definitely feel like I've eternal, internalised them. I had this experience one day when I drafted a poem and it was just a long and skinny poem. And I, th and I thought, oh... Maybe I'll put that into a five-beat line. So four, four sonnets, like, you know, 14 lines, five beats to a line, that's 70 beats. And so I wrote it out as a five-beat line. There were exactly 70 beats. And, and not only that, but it was in the form of a sonnet. You know, it was... It was it, here's the setup. you know. Here's the development. Here's the volta or the turn. And here's the kicker, that, that um, rhyming couplet at the end that he does so beautifully. And, and I used to talk to people about, you know, people say, how do you do a conclusion? And it's like, well, that's what the sonnet... The sonnet tells you how to do a conclusion to anything. And that is, you take a person by the hand and you lead them to the mountaintop. Now, if you said this thing to them down here at the bottom of the valley, they wouldn't understand what you're talking about. But when you take them to the mountaintop and you tell them, then they understand. And I think that's what Shakespeare does often in the sonnets, yeah. And the audience would all have noticed how you were invited to congratulate yourselves on knowing that there were 14 lines and five beats to the line there and a rhyming couplet at the end. Listen, Not with you, um, mate. Stand the pub now, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we're running a bit short on time. I believe you've got three more poems you'd like to read to us. But... I've got two and one of them's a sonnet. <laughs> when the sonnet was more formalised, it lasted hundreds of years, but probably from the 1850s or somewhere around there, it's been, it was, people were starting to break it down because it was a little bit rigid. And, you know, one of the things about contemporary poetry is that it talks to contemporary society. It's about what's going on now. So the sonnet, lots of people have done sonnets in different forms and... Um, and they're doing that because they want what they're saying to be relevant right now. Um, 
This is called 30 Years On. Uh, my father died when he was 51. Um, my son was 11 days old at the time. Uh, he spent, my father, this is, spent four days in hospital in a coma and we, the family was wondering whether he was going to survive or not, which he didn't. And in those four days, um, I drove down with my son um, to see him in hospital. And so they never met, um, but they were in the same ward in the hospital for a little while. Um, so this, is, this, is, this poem was called 30 Years On. I'd have a drink, I think. 30 years on. You'd be 86 today if you'd lived. And what might we have looked like walking streets I'd rarely seen since I left town, left you. On a sunlit Saturday, 30 years since your death, you'd buy the paper, check the guide for runners at Randwick, I the pub we passed. You'd ask about my son, and I imagine pride burning in your eyes rise from a place I'd not known. You never met him, though, but you knew his name and shared a ward with him after your fall. I stood at your bed. He lay in a bassinet not yet a fortnight old, his breath catching on life and yours on death. There's a, there's, um, I mean, something about these poems about the past and the, my childhood and stuff like that. It's like, it's, it's the past is a vast inventory of you know things that we've done and seen and heard and you know. And to me, it's just an endlessly fascinating place to be. The Irish say that you know the past is not dead; it's not even past. And I think I'm in that camp of, you know, and 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 certainly there's. I mean, uh, I think. Um, I can't remember her name, an American writer, she said that by the time you're eight years old, you've got enough to write about for the rest of your life. And I, I, think, I, I think I agree with that. Huh? Yeah. She, there's very Shakespearean, the ending, the IRA. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Will I read another one? Please. This is called Once Fished. Yes, you can talk to Nicole about it because it's her favourite too. Once fished, actually, the thing about this poem, um, this is the this is the first mature poem that I wrote. This was this was I am really going to work hard to try and get these images into people's minds and 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 let the image do the work. It's a bit like Ezra Pound and the Imagist, you know, let the image work. Um, once fished. We cast our lines over still water and the sinkers plop like sheep droppings onto the glass-like surface and are swallowed. Ripples radiate toward the dam's edge like ours and we wait. Magpies with cackling calls poke mullock at our stupid inactivity but we're only nine and it can't last. We throw stones at the heckling codgers, unroosting them from their high perches in almighty gums. Their wings crank them into the distance, pale blue, relentless sky. 
Cows tread softly in sodden paddocks, tugging grass listlessly. Three and a half miles down the stony dirt road in a curtained kitchen, my mother wiped the knife on her apron. Fat spits in the saucepan. Blowflies clog the air. Rigid heat. We skipped stones over the surface of the dam, bored shitless with fishing and its unrewards. We lift earth-stained rocks sucked from mud and cow pats and heave them with thin-armed might into the dam. The gut-drodging swallowed sound echoes across far paddocks. Cows lift their heads. Crows cry. Pale blue relentless sky. In the distance, smoke rises from the burner. The men at the mill, my old man among them, sweat and wrestle the timber until the dead-owed hooter sounds out smoko. They sit on bench tops, squat in patches of shade. Cigarettes hang from wrinkled lips, they talk. Silence between each thought, scrawling the sawdust. Then the rod bends and the sickening excitement of hooking a fish thumps us in the mid-drift. We cut our way through noonday heat and snatch the rod, hawk-eyed boys looking in deep, searching out the fish. There, there it darts and stops and starts, straining the invisible line in vain. We jerk it into sudden air and bash out its brains on a rock. The knife tears through scales and cold flesh like old carpet. We rip the fish from anus to gullet. Fingers scoop the oozing warmth of tiny innards and plop them into the dirt. An invitation to smitten flies. An empty fish rolls an empty eye. Pale blue relentless sky. We chuck the fish in a hessian bag and plug it below the water's surface. Its guts lie on the bank, a tangled mass of stillborn secrets. Innocent fingers probe the bruised heap kidney Intestine, little liver, all laid bare. The heart still pumps. A skinny finger jabs the tiny mass and all is still. A second death. Another jab and the heart starts over, longing for its sodden body lying at the bottom of the bank. The game goes on. Resurrection after resurrection. Stop. Start. Live die.